I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to And The Writer Is with Ross Golan. There are millions of singers, thousands of artists, and only 40 songs per genre at a time. These are the stories of the hottest creatives, the most venerable legends, artists, songwriters, executives, and more. Come join our Discord, follow our socials, and share your music with the And The Writer Is community. We'll see you all there, and now, here's this week's episode. Welcome to And The Update Is. I'm your host, Paige McDonald, and this is your weekly music industry update. Snapchat has signed onto a multi-year deal with Live Nation. Snapchat stated that the partnership will elevate performances beyond stages and screens through custom-built immersive augmented reality. The Weeknd has signed a publishing pact with Universal Music Group, which comes as his contract with Cobalt reaches its end. Brian Ken has been promoted to Vice President of Media at Republic Records. Targa Sahun and Nick Steinhardt have been named Senior Vice Presidents of Creative at Capitol Records. Sahun will lead overseeing music video and visual content production and Steinhardt with art direction for Capitol's full roster of artists. Spotify has seen a slowdown in premium subscriber growth since the results of quarter one and credits part of the slow numbers to the withdrawal from Russia. Lizzo is making her Metaverse performance debut during the second annual Songbreaker Awards, which will be the first award show on Roblox. Jackie Winkler, who played a major role in the signing and A&R of Lauren Spencer Smith, has been advanced to vice president of A&R at Island Records. Warner Music Group has launched its own in-house podcast network called Interval Presents. The new network will produce multi-format culture-forward audio content at the intersection of music, pop culture, and social impact. Canadian twin sister duo Tegan and Sarah have signed to Mom and Pop Music, which follows them closing out a previous record deal with Warner Records. Glenn Medlinger has been promoted to EVP of Republic Records and President of Imperial Music, which was launched by Republic in September of 2021. Sony Music Publishing has promoted Nick Brawl to Vice President of Creative. Harry Styles' single As It Was is heading for its fourth week at the top of the Almost Unmoving Singles Top 10 chart. Nancy Liu has been named President of the Digital Marketing Agency 740 Project, which is a partnership with Capital Music Group. BMG has acquired stake in Primal Scream's song catalog. A big thank you to Hannah Rosenberg of Mega House for gathering today's news. Now stay tuned for this week's episode of And The Writer Is.
Welcome to And the Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's country rock star is Nashville's new songwriting superstar. He has already penned hits for icons like Florida Georgia Line, Chris Lane, Morgan Wallen, Blake Shelton, and not hyperbolically many, many more. His prolific and prodigious talent is hard to keep up with because his artist career is blazing too. The lead single off his most recent album, One Beer, featuring Lauren Elena and Devin Dawson, is a three-time ACM nominee. And he personally has garnered over 685 million career-on-demand streams. I'm sure it's more since uh, I started reading this intro. All the way from Philadelphia. Uh, Philadelphia, Mississippi, that is. This guy is winning the hearts of the entire songwriting community. And the writer is... Michael Hardy, a.k.a. just Hardy. <laughs> What's up, man? Hey, man. Dude, uh, uh, everybody talks about you. Do they? Is that a thing? I think so. I mean, I feel like anytime someone talks about, you know, country, Nashville, anybody who's, you know, it's like they either want to get in with you or they know, you know, it's like uh, people who know you in the business uh, love you and... Uh, you know, y- you didn't just like show up out of nowhere. It's not like you're not 14 years old. So I kind of want to tell you. <laughs> I kind of want to tell your path a little bit. Um, yeah, man. Let's start from the beginning, man. F- Philadelphia. Yeah, um, Philadelphia, Mississippi is like a small town. It's probably 8,000 people. Um, I grew up like just playing sports and just being a kid. You know. Like what sports? And uh, I played baseball and golf in high school. Um, oh, interesting. But I, I just I hunted and fished my whole life, and 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 I wasn't super into music. Uh, my sister was actually, she still is, but she was like the singer and kind of the star child of the family. And so at a young age, like she was the one that was like doing singing competitions and stuff like that. Uh, so growing up, I, I didn't really touch a guitar until I was 16 or 17 years old and just kind of realized I had like a little bit of a thing too. Um, I just never like, never followed her. Uh, I never did like the music thing because that was like her thing, you know, and I just, that kind of, it just sort of cast a shadow on 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 that for me just because I, I was like, okay, well, that's her thing. What's my thing, you know, and never, I didn't really consider it to be music for a long time. Do you think you're, family encourage the kids to do separate things or do you think that's just sort of when you grow up and your siblings doing something you kind of want to do either exactly what they're doing or the exact opposite i i think uh like my parents never forced like making or singing music on me at all so i would think that they definitely encouraged me to do different uh different things. I mean, I think that we all just assumed that I didn't, I was not musically inclined and and that my sister was, I mean, that's just, I think that was the general consensus with the whole family. Um, you know, until I was 17 or 18. What kind of music did you have in the house? Uh, really? I mean, for myself, it was mostly rock and roll and like pop music and, and, um, Honestly, just a lot of rock and roll. Uh, Aerosmith, like I, the Aerosmith Big Ones record, you know, the yeah. all, all the all the big songs or whatever. Um, 
that was a huge record growing up when I was like a kid in my family. And, and, uh, so we, we listened to that a lot. And, um, uh, you know, my mom and my sister would listen to Celine Dion and, and stuff like that. Uh, but as far as me and my dad, it was just a ton of rock and roll. And I tried to get my hands on, um, like as many, you know, rock and roll CDs. What was the, what was the catalog they used to send you and you would pick out CDs? Yeah. And order well, they had like Columbia house and they had, what was the other one? I don't think it was BMG, but it was like Columbia house and somebody else is going to, somebody's going to hit us up on social yeah, media. Yeah, right yeah. There. But yeah, where you'd get like for $9, you'd get like 15 CDs. Yeah. And I remember my first one that my dad let me order was, um, yourself or someone like you matchbox 20 and then chris uh kiss destroyer was i bought those two at the same time that was like the first two cds i ever owned the i I think if you look at the evolution of rock and roll in in the u.s you would think that um you know after what you're talking about matchbox 20 and stuff in a way, so much of that world ends up becoming what a lot of country music is. Do you think that, because you didn't mention any country artists, do you think that um, that's why you ended up in Nashville? Definitely. I didn't listen to country till I was like 18 or 19. I grew up, I always say I grew up country and did the whole small town thing, you know, but um, I did not listen to... I didn't care for country at all until I was older. Um, so, da- I mean, I, there's no doubt that, you know, rock and roll was definitely the reason I moved to Nashville. I, I, I when I moved, I didn't, I, I just wanted to be maybe like a songwriter or I, I don't really know. I just kind of moved up there and just said like, we'll see what happens. But, um, but like, it was definitely like my love for rock and roll is the reason that I, you know, that's the reason I fell in love with music. And that's, so that's, that's definitely what pushed me up there for sure. Once, when did you first start? You said you were 16 when you started playing around on guitar. Yeah. 16 or 17. I started like, I learned how to play a few chords, you know? And then when I was 18, I wrote, I wrote like my first song. What was that called? Uh, Caroline, I think it was shit. (laughs) Is, is Caroline somebody from Mississippi? No, some made up story about a girl. Like I met this girl at the grocery store or something and, and, uh, and, uh, Cal, like I, I got her number, but I never saw her again. I went to go look for her or something like that. Do you remember how it goes? I just remember the hook was like, uh, man, if I dug like a lot, I could probably find it, but I don't even know if I want to do that. <laughs> The it's hook a- was like, I just want to introduce myself again. It was something like that. It, was, it wasn't country, though. It was like kind of, it was just like really bad, like Jack Johnson-ish kind of thing. That was like, that was my first like baby songwriter brain. That's like, the, that's the vibe that I went for, you know. Uh, you went to, um, to Middle Tennessee State, but that was, was that before or was that before you got to college? Was this something like post high school when you kind of feel like you know why I guess a couple things happen I think with athletes in high school and I don't want to project so you know I feel like a lot of times it's like it's hard to really get into like the idea of being vulnerable and being a songwriter you know is there a reason yeah. why you waited till after high school to write songs and not just play guitar 
No, 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 no. It just kind of, it just kind of happened. And I moved. So I went to MTSU to do music. Um, but no, I went to one year of junior college. Uh, and I started, I wrote a few songs there just for fun and, and like my buddies and stuff liked it. So, uh, you know, they were kind of my little support group or whatever support system. And so, uh, I did it just for fun there. And then, and then that, those like little small batch of songs and like my, my friends, like encouragement was, that was the reason that, that I, I moved up there. And so I, I went to MTSU to, to, to study songwriting basically. Yeah, I don't think people realize, so, you know, we always talk about Berkeley and USC and NYU and Belmont, and yet uh, Middle Tennessee State turns out some pretty good songwriters. Yeah, I guess so, man. Luke Laird went there. Um, Dave Haywood from Lady A went there. Chris Young. Uh, there's a few. There's, a, there's actually, yeah, you're right. There's actually quite a handful of them. I mean, you couldn't name, you know, there. I, I can imagine that we could go through a lot of much, much bigger schools that don't have those four songwriters coming out of it. So something about that school is special. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, everybody kind of calls it the poor man's Belmont. <laughs> uh, so it's definitely, I mean, it's as far as I know, I mean, it's kind of the only other competitive <clears throat> school in Nashville that has like, that's turning out like hit, you know, hit writers and stuff. Yeah, so crazy. Um, when you started writing songs and you start playing it around your group of friends, and you said, you know, it's your sister's. She was the star in the family. Um, you know, it's like I always joke, "This is your story, not mine." But my my dad still he'll be like, you know, he's like, I have two two professional singers in the in the family, and I love my sister, and she's brilliant. You know, but she didn't pursue that as a profession. My dad just sees her as that, you know? So it's like right. an interesting thing. Like, how did your family deal with when you're like, well, I'm going to pursue music too? They were super supportive. Very supportive. Um, you know, they, I mean, there was never a doubt. I told, I called my, my mom actually and I just said, hey, I, I want to move to Nashville. And, uh, they were okay with it. And I did, I did follow, I didn't, I didn't mention that. I don't know if you know that part of my story, but my sister moved to Nashville and actually did go to Belmont and pursued a singing career for a minute. And, uh, she's the one when I was in college, she called me more or less one day and said, um, Hey, I know you've been writing some songs. And if you, you know, if you're trying to figure out kind of what you want to do, uh, there's a thing up here called a publishing deal. And, uh, you know, you can, you get paid to write songs. And she, at the time she was doing the music thing too. So, but between her and my parents, like they, they couldn't be more supportive. It was, it was, uh, I, I was very lucky cause I hear a lot of stories of people who, whose parents maybe weren't as supportive, but my mine definitely were. Were they musicians too? My mom plays piano and sings and my dad, my dad just loves music and he can sing, you know, um, but he's not like, he never played an instrument or anything, but, but he, uh, he, he's, you know, he loves rock and roll and all kinds of music, but, um, my mom is definitely musically inclined for sure. Moving to Nashville, having, you, you had just lived in Mississippi, right? At that point. Yeah. And, you know, your sister says, like, you know, you can get this thing called a publishing deal, which is like an amazing thing to just say to somebody and you're like, all right. And then you go and you just get a publishing deal. It's kind of awesome. Uh -huh. But um, when you moved up to Nashville, 
one, like, where did you move? And, you know, what what are those first... You show up to Nashville and somebody says you can get a publishing deal. That's one thing. But I think almost everybody who's listening to this who either got their publishing deal or wanted a publishing deal, like, it's... There's no path that's normal. So you show up to Nashville and she's like, oh, you can get this publishing deal. How do you then get a publishing deal? Huh. Okay. So this is kind of a crazy story. Um, so my dad, my dad was a chicken farmer for like 15 years. And, um, when my sister moved to Nashville in 2007, he uh, was ready to sell his farm and it had been, he had had it for so long that he had paid it off. So, so, uh, you know, he had a lot of equity in the farm. And so he sold that farm and they paid off their vehicles and their house and they had some money left over. So they bought, they invested in a condo or an apartment in Nashville for my sister. And, um, this was, you know, three or four years before I even, you know, thought about moving. And so when I moved, I moved, uh, I moved in with my sister, uh, that first summer and I worked at a golf course and I was a cart boy. So I was just cleaning, picking up golf carts and cleaning golf carts and taking them back and doing that whole thing. So, um, so then I start going, I moved to MTSU. I get it. I get like a really small apartment there. Um, I had a few jobs, you know, uh, in and out. My parents, very, I'm very thankful they helped me get through school. Uh, and, um, you know, I cut grass during the summer. I did, did stuff like that. But uh, so my, my grandfather, who's still, uh, still alive and he lives in um, Philadelphia still, his uh, mother was a smith. And she had a sister named Hildred and Hildred had a son named Dennis and Dennis in the eighties and nineties and early two thousands was a hit songwriter. Really? Um, yeah. But Dennis, so Hildred <laughs> married a man from New York city and they lived in New York and then they moved to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So Dennis grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania and all of his mom's side of the family was in Philadelphia, Mississippi. And Dennis uh, moved to LA in the eighties and he wrote uh, maniac. And that kind of started his career and he wrote, he had other pop hits in the eighties. And then, and then, um, he wrote like uh, red light by David nail. Uh, you'll think of me by Keith Urban. Like he had some country hits as well. So I, I hadn't always known Dennis and I had met him a couple times and knew who he was. I knew he lived in Nashville, but I didn't know like what he was capable of or how he could help me at all. And I was putting out like, like just kind of, original at that point after a couple of years of being at mtsu i'd kind of learned to write country songs and i never really made a whole lot of friends or, or or had a big social life in college so i just kind of stayed stayed um locked in my room and i just sort of taught myself how to write songs and so i would record those songs on my webcam with my little snowball mic and i would put them on youtube and uh and like share them on my facebook and all that stuff and one day dennis out of the blue wrote on my Facebook wall and just said, Hey, like I see um, that you're writing songs and stuff. And, you know, I'd love to reach out and just see what I can do for you. And so I got his number and, and went over to his house and I played him like every song I'd ever written. It was like 15 songs. And, uh, and he 
told me, he said, you're not ready yet, but um, you'll be ready soon. I just want to work with you for about a year and, and, and you know, see what's up. So, uh, so about at the summer, so I had to take one more semester in the summer to graduate and I, he had lined a publishing deal up for me. Um, so I was super excited and, and, uh, right when I graduated, I was kind of supposed to sign this deal and the deal fell through and one of the, one of the, uh, companies kind of backed out. And, and so he had to call me and just say, dude, I'm sorry, but this deal fell through. And so, uh, a few months go by and I, you know, he just keeps telling me, just keep writing songs. And, and finally I, I wrote this song by myself called dog years. And it was this perspective, like from a dog. <laughs> and like, how, and it was just like how the dog was like thankful, um, you know, that this, his owner or whatever gave him a good life and all this. And then of course, you know, the dog dies in the end. And, and, uh, anyway, and that, that song he took back to, um, Cobalt and just said, Hey, look, like this kid, you know, wrote this by himself. I know he's young, but I think we should sign him. And so that is, that was my first publishing deal was Dennis's, uh, company called, uh, Watsky music and it was with uh cobalt so that was that was my first deal and i, I still write for dennis to this day I've, we've changed companies and switched a few things around but i'm i'm still with dennis uh to this day and we have a company now called relative music and i'm a partner with him and his son jesse that's amazing so what is the you know first of all attainability is everything if you know that it's possible then you aim for it. So it's like, that's an amazing thing to have in your family to see this is what excellence is. So then you aim for that excellence. So that makes sense. I guess before we get into the business stuff, when you're coming up with songs like Dog Years and you're doing, uh, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, your current team talks about behind your back is how prolific you are and how good you are at writing so many different concepts and whatnot. So I guess... My, you know, are you learning that from listening to greats and being like, oh, you can write songs from any perspective? Or was this an actual something like you took a class and somebody said, you know, you can write songs from a dog's perspective? No, no, no. It was definitely something that I picked up along the way. The, The songwriting class was like very basic and not, it wasn't as like, creative as it was like more like it was creative but it was it was like this is a commercial songwriting class so you either have to start with a verse or start with a chorus and make sure that things you know are yeah have hooks and they're repeatable and like there was a lot more about melody instead of lyrics so um i hate saying this but i i didn't get a whole lot out of the class i don't think um it was kind of a lot of stuff that most people I think already knew if you just listen to the radio a little bit, you know? Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I think honestly, uh, the two people I think that inspired me the most to, to kind of, you know, make me realize that you can write things from different perspectives was like early Brad Paisley stuff. Yeah. And, um, Eric church, those two definitely, uh, it just opened my eyes a lot, man, and and uh, just kind of never been shut from that from that first kind of experience listening to those guys. Yeah, Brad has like this incredible, like there's nobody in any genre, including you know 
theater, film, anything. Nobody can write the perspectives that that guy can write. I mean, it, it's yeah. amazing. It's amazing when you can. I don't know. I think I think the first time I really started like diving in was after you know check you for ticks and being like that's yeah. it's just next level brilliant you know and yeah. then you start going down and you're like oh he is all of the songs <laughs> yeah letter to me was like a huge that was one of the first ones that I was like damn dude that's good like that's so different and cool there there were a lot and then Eric Church had a song called uh, lightning that was uh it was from the perspective of a guy that was getting ready to um he was on a, he was, he, Eric was the character in the song, but he was sitting in a, um, like an electric chair because oh, he had wow. murdered somebody. And it was just a really cool perspective song. I love that. Murder ballads are always exciting. Um, yeah. I feel like, you know, that's all been put into a, a different genre these days, murder ballads, but uh, can never get enough of good ones. Um, yep. Why did you move on from your cobalt situation with Dennis? Why, like, what, what was the impetus to go and start, you know, moving to an, a, a different kind of publishing deal? Uh, man, it was just time. You know how that stuff goes. It was just uh, we just needed something new, and um, business is business. And and uh, we're with Sony now with admin. And uh, it was just a timing thing, man. It, and honestly, uh, Dennis had more um, control over that situation than I did because we, we made the move before I became partner. So uh, he, he technically made that decision. But, uh, man, it was just a business thing. Just what year? One of those things. What year was that that you did the, that you did the Cobalt deal? That was from 2014. Uh, and then I... Uh, 2014, and then I re-signed with Dennis in 2017, and then um, the switch was made uh, this year, actually. When, um, you know, 2014 to 2017, which is really when your first cut comes out, you have to go, you know, you do this deal with... Dennis and Cobalt, and it's got to be like, okay, cool, I'm a professional writer. But so far, it seems like, you know, come to come to Nashville, you'll get a publishing deal, and you go, and like the deal falls through, and whatever, but then you get a deal pretty quickly. It's still all really fast. You know, some people wait years and years and years, and it still, still seems fast. But three years from 2014 to 2017 for the Tyler Farr record, like that's actually like kind of a long time. What are you doing during those years in Nashville? Dude, I was just writing my ass off, man. I wrote every day, sometimes twice. Um, yeah, that was kind of a thing. A lot of people, I get a lot, I do a lot of interviews that people are like, man, you kind of came out of nowhere. And, and uh, I was like, no, I didn't, dude. I was in Nashville for eight years before I had my first song on the radio, like my first song on the radio that I heard on the radio. Um, but yeah, I, the, the Tyler Farr thing, I think was 2017, right? And, and then, um, that song peaked at like 65 and then up down was after that. But my whole first deal, I didn't get, I didn't get a cut or a single until the very, very end of it. And then, and then the next, uh, the next year, the following year I had, uh, I had 
a, a few. I had quite a few. Everything kind of started happening after that. Man, I, you just want to tell every writer, like, eight, eight, you know, they say that 10 years, it takes 10 years to make an overnight success. And, you know, it's yeah. like you spend eight years grinding as a writer, and it's, um, it's not it's not just to show people that you have the work ethic. It's also because you probably became a better writer and more consistent over time. And even though you thought probably songs from the beginning, some of them might've been great and still should get cut. But I'm sure like the, so much of it is about batting average. You know, it's like if you can show up and write, if you write a good song, every 10 songs, it's hard to find that one song. But if you write a good song, every, you know, seven out of 10, then you start having like a better shot at actually getting cuts and getting singles because still, even if you write seven out of ten, you know, five of those are not gonna be heard by the public. Yeah. You know, and it's hard it's hard to explain to people, you know, how difficult those eight years of grinding is. And ninety nine percent of successful writers had to do that. Most of them aren't just like they showed up, they wrote a hit, and then they continually wrote hits. Maybe they got lucky, but like they're not doing it. You know, it takes years. Oh, definitely. I mean, um, I, I mean, I definitely think, you know, at the time I was frustrated, dude. Like, you know, I was three years into my publishing deal. I never had a cut. And I, was, I was at the point where I was mad. You know, I was getting jaded a little bit. And I just did. You're right. I mean, I, had, I hadn't figured it out yet. And uh, it just, you hit a stride, man, where you kind of figure it out and then you start catching the attention of people who, who know what, you know, actual hit songs are and they're telling you their hits. And then that kind of gives you confidence and it also gives you more of a template to write from. So you start writing more stuff like that and, and you know, it, that, that snowball just keeps rolling down the hill. Um, and then, you know, there's that thing too of where, you start getting in the room with artists um, that's turns into a whole different thing. And then your momentum is just, you know, kind of off to the races, but I, I, it definitely took time to figure it out, man. It was just something I didn't realize at the time. Um, once, you know, it's, it, it, you know, like the snowball starts, it's, you, you get a song that's charting that peaks at number 65. And it's like, it couldn't have been higher. Do you know what I mean? At that moment, you're like, Oh my God, I got it. You know, I got this. I got it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A song. Was, was there any one song that people, you know, 
before we get to Morgan Wallen and stuff, and before those other the songs that really work, were there other songs along the way where everyone's like, "Oh man, that's the guy who wrote the Tyler Farr record within the industry"? Were there, or was there like a was it like, "Ah, oh, that guy wrote Dog Years. That song should have gotten cut, but it never did." Was there ever a song that you were like, "Man, that's the one that really opened the doors"? Yeah, it wasn't Tyler Farr though. It was Up Down. I mean, it, yeah. it it was up down. I mean, the Tyler Farr thing was cool, but it didn't. I don't. I don't feel like it got a lot of attention in town. Um, maybe a little bit, but it was more through just my like little circle of of publisher friends and like songwriter friends. But um, the I, up down was the song that was the one that that got the attention for sure. Yeah. So let's talk about that. I mean, there's one thing when you've been struggling for years and you're frustrated, and then it it always seems like half finally it's like it's easy like oh that was the song oh i should have written that years ago because how hard was that Uh you know uh but a song like up down so big and it's with an artist it really breaks you know uh kind of like a generational kind of artist you know what was the experience of of now actually seeing you know what that's worth not financially, just in general. Oh, I mean, just as far as like helping break Morgan's career, you mean, and my and my own? Yeah, I mean, it's really your own. I mean, I think when a songwriter, you know, it's fun to watch. You go along with the artist a little bit, so it's a your your careers end up becoming kind of intertwined when you're like, yeah, you know. So I don't know. I don't. It's just a however you want to answer it. Yeah, I mean, dude, it was huge, and I didn't even know it at the time. Um, you know, we when when Seth England, who's now my manager, um, he heard first. He heard Brad Clausen, uh, who's another co-writer on that um, song, uh, whose dad is Rodney Clausen. Uh, he heard Brad play that at QS Songwriter Festival, and then like the same day went to my writer's round and he heard me play it. And, and he was like, this is the song we want to cut from Morgan for his next single. And, you know, we were all like, Holy shit. And, uh, cause I was a big fan. I was a big fan of the way I talk. And, and I just, I had heard some of his stuff and I was like, this kid's really good. Um, but yeah, I mean, dude, that's, that's the song that started it all. That was the song that started his and my relationship, which led to me writing, you know, most of his first record and, and obviously having a few songs on this big record for him. And, and, uh, and that song, you know, he he collabed with FGL, and and that had a big reason um, for me, uh, my relationship with them. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that was huge. That was a, such a big, huge door opening song for me. It wasn't just my first hit. It had it, it, there was a lot that went with that. Yeah, I mean, your relationship with Big Loud is obviously intertwined with that too. I assume, like that, just yeah. Totally. I had already, I had already been out on the road some with FGL writing, but that, that song kind of, that, that opened the doors wide open for that whole big loud situation. There is no, there's no doubt about that. Well, that brings us to our next segment of what would Craig Wiseman ask Hardy Uh on and the writer is. And he asked a few questions for you. First, he says, what's that tattoo uh, on your wrist, what is that? What's that tattoo of a wristband? Oh, that's what it is. What's that tattoo of a wristband and, and that you have, and why do you have it? Dude, so I have this crazy county fair where I'm from. I'm actually playing it next week for the first time, which is really cool. Um, but it's a, it's so, it's, it's just like a festival wristband, but uh, 
man, it's a really cool county fair. There's like a thousand of these like family owned cabins out in the middle of the country. Like, and the, it's like a ghost town for like an entire year, but for like one week out of the year, like the entire town and, and people from all over, they move into their, their cabins. And it's not like Gatlinburg cabins. They're like these tall and skinny, like crazy colored, strung with lights. And it's just like a big party. And it's just like this huge neighborhood and everything else is like a county fair, but you stay there and, and people are just drinking beer the whole time. And it's just, it's just one of the coolest things in America, I think. Uh, and so I got the wristband permanently tattooed on my, my wrist. It's amazing. Uh, he also he asked a bunch of questions, so I'm just going to go through it. Why not? He says, um, what are some of your teenage jobs that made a crazy music career seem appealing? One of my, my favorite jobs uh, was uh, I worked for the cemetery department slash animal control because our town was really small. So I was cutting cemeteries and digging graves and then like, when it was raining or like if the graph, it got too hot and the grass like fried out, we would, we would just go chase stray dogs through like town and shoot them with tranquilizer darts and then put them in the dog pound. So if I wasn't digging graves, I was shooting dogs with tranquilizer darts. That was, that was definitely the, the hardest working job. Um, that definitely like, I was like, I don't, I love this job, but I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, and then his last, his last, like that's, it's like hard to conceptualize that job because that's not even <laughs> something, you know, it's not like if you live in a major city, that's not an occupation you can even do, you no. know? Yeah, no, definitely not. Um, and then he, he asked how long before you drop a triple album because you're the most prolific writer in a decade. I think, I think I could definitely, um, do it. Uh, it's probably just a matter of time, but I would I would love to. So he was seri- he was serious, and you're serious too. Is this something you guys have really discussed? Because I mean, you've gone from like a, you know mixtape to an album is really like it's a big jump. But I mean, how why not? I don't. I'm not opposed to it, man. Um, I mean, I have. I'm always like sitting on a lot of songs that I I would cut, and and uh, so you never know. <laughs> we'll see. Um. The last thing he said that we can wait and you don't have to like you don't have to play it or anything, but he just said that you have a new song that haunts him because we also were texting for like a half hour this morning, so it, it was a long conversation. But he was just said he just said wait in the truck is songwriter. Uh-huh. Crack. He said he called it songwriter crack. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty special. I uh. I'll have to send it to you because we're not, that one's not coming out yet. Uh, yeah, I asked him, I was like, can I even it, ask about it? He goes, yeah, man, we're not that kind of label. You can ask whatever you want. So, I mean, you can take yeah, it up with No, him. it's fine. It's totally <laughs> fine. Um, yeah, it's something that I haven't uh, haven't put out yet, but uh, it's it's the best song I've ever written. <laughs> Damn. Oh, please send it. I want to hear it. Um, I will. Okay, so you start writing hits for people. It's now becoming something where you're kind of probably, I don't want to say you're used to it, but do you start thinking it's easy? No, it's still not easy. Uh, I think when you, I think if I get in the room with an artist, it's easier than, than just trying to get cuts with your buddies. 
um, or the people that you write with. Uh, cause I think a lot of the, a lot of the artists that you write with and a lot, a lot of the, when they come into the room, they just want to write like a hit and a song that sounds like the radio. And, and I think it's easier to just get a good radio song with an artist in the room. Um, just because that incentivizes them to, to cut it more. Um, but it's still, man, it's still hard to get cuts. If you're not in the room with somebody, you know, Cole Swindell or freaking whoever, dude, you know, I'm just trying to think of guys that just put out just hits, you know, um, Dustin Lynch or any of those guys, man, any, any, pretty much any artist. If you're not in the room with them, um, it still is, it can be tough. Uh, you still have their phone numbers and you can send, send them songs and stuff. But, um, I, I don't get, I still don't get like a ton of cuts, uh, if there's not like an artist in the room. So it's, I mean, it's, it's still hard to get songs cut and, and then, it's hard to get them on the radio. You know, I think it'll always be like that. I definitely don't want to start thinking it's too easy or, you know, I feel like you lose your, your drive a little bit. Yeah. And I think you said a lot of things there that are truths that are hard to swallow. If you can't get in the room with artists, you know, it's that it's, it's, it's really hard to get cuts if you're not with an artist. And, yeah, you know, one of the things I tell my writers when they can't get in the room with, an artist is that I still think ideas are worth a lot. So if you write with people and then you can at least bring in the idea and you know, there are a lot of people who are really uh, savvy with the way that they, you know, I just wrote this song yesterday, even though it's seven years old and it's like, cause it just happens to fit the artist that they're in with tomorrow. You know, it's like yeah. that catalog can be valuable if they can, um, you know, if they can be savvy about who they split it with and share it with, yeah. you know? Yeah, totally. Um, but you do a lot of songs there where you don't co-write, and I I really respect that in an era where there are so many writers who are afraid to spend the time to write by themselves. Uh, how long, you know, like Rednecker, I believe that's one where you just had a producers, right? I think you just wrote no, that no, no, one. no, that, that one. I which that is was the one that, that was with two other writers. That's with two other writers, but I feel like you had a couple on that I can't remember which ones. Where it was like you wrote it, you know? Like, are you still writing? Do you or you write with like one other person? You're not necessarily. Maybe it's because it's like the you you see the back of some of these songs and they've got like eight writers on them. And country, oh, yeah. and country's really kind of like starting to lean into that sometimes on some of their artists where they have so many writers, especially when you start adding in features and shit like that. You know, yeah. but like you still seem to write with a small group of people on most of the songs that you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely do, man. Um, Hunter Phelps, uh, who's also one of my best friends, uh, we write a lot together. Um, and a lot of times, like, we'll start stuff. And then, um, I'll, you know, these days, man, I like to start stuff and then like bring it into a producer writer. Um, you know, I don't mind, I don't mind splitting the royalties if it's going to help the song get better. And, and, uh, you know, these days, man, I feel like it's just so much easier to, to get something started and then bring it to some, another creative mind that can really bring it to life as opposed to pitching around an acoustic work tape for years to try to get it cut when it's not translating the way that it should, you know? And, and, and my personal opinion on that is, is that, uh, that, that producer writer or track guys, people like to say uh, deserves a piece of that pie because they, 
they um, more times than not were a huge reason why the song got cut and, and you know a huge reason behind what would turn into the production inspiration and all of that kind of stuff um so but i do start a lot of stuff with people and then and then bring it in later like uh, ain't a bad day i wrote like the verse and chorus um it's a song that was on my record like i had the verse and the chorus written and then um pretty much minus maybe a line and then i brought that into uh hunter phelps and, and jake mitchell and, and and jake does the rock thing really good so he he really brought like the track to life you know so um that's kind of where i stand on that whole thing you know the morgan wallen album after you know you 2018 is really like everything showed up like you're you're done on the ride like like the the kid with potential now you're like a guy who writes hits and writes with hit writers um, and you experience all that the the beginning of the rise with Morgan, but then it's like the I feel like the song that that really changes in a way the narrative is something like God's Country, where you have such like a classic country artist cutting a record. It's so big, but it's not like the uh, you know it it shows that you can play on in different kinds of genres within the bigger genre of country. You know, what, how is it different for you to have a song with, you know, a, a sort of a classic artist like Blake versus the new artists like Morgan? Oh, man, it's huge. Um, yeah, completely different feeling as far as like the, you know, the euphoria behind having a hit. Um, way more surreal and uh, just more not that i'm not honored to have a, songs with morgan or any of my buddies but like just it just way more like grateful and honored and and um yeah it was just different man and and, and especially god's country because that song was so different for him and and i've always said like because a lot of people ask me why i didn't record that song and i just think it sounds like if i did it it just sounds like another hearty song like it's that's just like the thing that i do but like for blake to do it i think the reason it was so big is because it was so anthemic for him and so different for him that you know that's the reason that it was so big but um yeah i mean that song i was just super grateful for that one man that was such a cool run and 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 still a really big part in our set and i still hear it on the radio all the time so really thankful for that one what about all right so one beer comes out and it it's the thing that goes from like everyone knew you had this potential everyone was sort of banking on it at least people that I know who would talk about you but there's something different when a song actually sort of achieves like a certain level and and you know also like you you're you started you're treating country music differently than a lot of other country artists so, you know, you've now written hits for a lot of people and you had, had, you had your single, you'd had stuff, but this is different. This is a different thing when you're the artist. How does it compare to being a writer when you're, you know, versus being the artist? I mean, it's completely different. Um, I don't know. That's, that's a tough, that's a tough one. Uh, Cause it feels different, man. Like, especially like just everything that goes into a song turning, you know, turning into a hit or being a number one and seeing kind of seeing how all that goes down, but it's just different, man. I don't know that it's, it's harder to, to get a grasp on, um, you know, 
like, especially for me, cause like I moved to town to be a songwriter more or less. And, and, um, so like, to have a number one as an artist, I guess is a little bit harder to process for me just because it, it, it was, I don't know, man. It was, it was like never just in the back. It was never in the back of my mind to be an artist. I mean, it, maybe it was somewhere deep down in there, but, um, I don't know. It's just, you, you think and you pray for so long that you'll have hits as a writer. And, uh, and I just never, never really thought that I would have one as a, as a singer. So it's just, it's just different. I don't know. I, I feel like that's a terrible answer, but it's, it's pretty much all I got. <laughs> no, I like that. I, I think in the end when, you know, when we're, uh, when we're 70 and we do this interview then, and we look back, it'll be hard not to look at 2019 as a year that went from like, yeah, you had been a writer, and just when you thought you couldn't reach new peaks, yeah, you have number one as a as as an artist plus number ones as a writer. You know, Simple was a big record. I'm sure that there were other number ones that year, um, but like that, the idea of ringing the bell multiple times as a writer and as an artist, plus you're doing it with like. Like Devin and Lauren are amazing, cool people, and like you're experiencing all of it with such good people. You're surrounded by good yeah. people. I also feel like a lot of people in the business have like don't have the luck where they end up in <laughs> they end up in sessions with like or they end up in relationships where they complain about like ah oh, my publisher sucks or my label sucks or my my the single didn't work that this didn't work. And it feels like you've surrounded yourself with such good people. Is that because of you? Or is that because of your manager? Is that luck? What? What? I think it's. I, I think it's luck for sure. Um, I think about that a lot, man. I've never had any, really, any music business relationship that I've that I have been miserable in um, ever. And uh, I think it's luck. I also think though that I'm really careful about who I like let in or who I trust. And, and I really think about the decisions that I make and stuff. And I think that has a lot to do with it too. Just kind of being cautious, but um, dude, I mean, you're right. And, and also like there's this new crew coming up. That's, I really truly feel like we all know each other. And, and like, like there's so many artists and writers and just people that I would legit call tomorrow because they're my friend and go have a beer or something with them. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like everybody's rooting for each other and like just there's a new, it's just these a bunch of young people and we're all just coming up together and we're all just proud and we're rooting for each other and thank very thankful. And, and um, it's, it's a lot different than when I moved to town, but um, I just think this new wave is, 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 is a really good um, a wave of good people. After the pandemic started, you know, it obviously came as kind of a a shitty time as far as like all all the touring artists and all the people who and I mean the whole world has, has been shit. But they, you know, you had such an amazing 2019, and beginning of 2020, you even end up with like a Diplo record with you know Diplo and Cam. Um, how did you how did you deal with the world kind of coming to a halt sort of right as you hit a new peak yeah um well as an artist from the artist side it was it was tough man um 
I definitely went through some shit for a little bit. Uh, I think just trying to process everything coming to an end and, and, um, that part was tricky because, you know, we had, as an artist, like started really selling out shows and like having big shows and like we were doing it, you know, and our band was awesome and our show was awesome. And then suddenly like I'm having to call my bus driver and tell him that I can't, I can't pay him, you know, and, and my, my band guys are like having to drive Uber and Lyft. And that, that part just really kind of tore me up and, and, uh, and, and just, I kind of lost that, you know, I, I felt like I got fired from a job or I lost a little bit of my life because, you know, there was, I, I physically could do nothing about it. But, um, from the songwriter side, man, it was awesome. Um, I wrote a lot last year and, uh, I finished writing my record last year, you know, and, and we, we cut pretty much the whole record, um, throughout COVID, throughout the pandemic. And, uh, I mean, I developed a ton of relationships, um, as uh as a writer um during the pandemic so that part man was like a blessing in disguise because i feel like i'm about to have another kind of a big run as a as a songwriter again and and that is all because of uh having the time off to be able to d develop new relationships and write songs yeah and you also became kind of a zoom warrior from what i can tell like didn't you write a lot over zoom and you didn't seem to care yeah. a whole lot no I, no it doesn't bother me at all um i i I honestly prefer it sometimes. Uh, I just think it's streamlined. And once you can kind of get rid of that, break that barrier of the screen. And then it's, it's to me, it's exactly like sitting in the room with somebody. It's not very different at all. Yeah, man. You tell me when and where I, I'm like, I love zoom. I, <laughs> I just think it's so Dude. efficient. And I'm like, I, I get it. I miss going and getting lunch with the people I'm writing with. And it's like, I almost would rather write on zoom and then go get dinner with the people. Oh, yeah. 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 Because like, no we kidding, all have our studios. We all have our like. Yeah, I've got like thirty guitars behind me. Like, I want to, you know, I want to play. At, it's a different when you're playing at home versus in the studio. But you have to be with the right kind of writer to do it. Yeah, I think so. And some people can't stand it. Some people love it. Um, but I love it. I, I I would still do it today, and and I st I do it from the road, and and it's awesome. It's it kind of has changed the game for a lot of people. Yeah. Speaking of Zoom warriors, uh, um. It's Cameron Montgomery's birthday, and uh, I, um, oh, man. And he's the first time I, I heard about you through Cam, who's brilliant. And uh, he also asked a question. I said, well, what question do you have for And the Writer Is? And so his segment, he says, uh, he says that I should ask you if you still have time to collect arrowheads between all the hits. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I do, man. Um, when I'm home, that's, I mean, I'm, I was, I, yesterday was like, I can't wait to get back and get on my boat and just ride around and find, find arrowheads. Uh, yes, yeah, that's, that's a big hobby of mine. I, I just go to different places where I know they are and, and just find them. But yeah, I, I still get to do it all the time when I'm home. Wait, so those, those are arrowheads as in like, uh, you know, as in like 200 year old arrowheads, right? No, nah, they're older than that, man. Really? A lot of people think that they're 200 years old, but they're actually, uh, most of them are thousands of years old. Wow. In theory, you got to think that Native Americans were here for 12, 10 to 12,000 years. Um, and sorry, I have my computer went weird again. Yeah, so in theory, they've been here for, you know, 10 to 12,000 years. And uh, so they're everywhere and they're old, man. You just, it's a whole, they have like a whole, 
a whole process or how they date them and all that stuff. And like they're, if they're older, they're like more well-made and they look different. And if they're newer, they're, you know, the opposite. And, and uh, you just kind of have to be a nerd about that stuff to know, to know the whole thing. But uh, yeah, they're out there, man. And I love finding them. Yeah. I, the history of, uh, you know, I guess 200 years ago, sort of Andrew Jackson and, and pushing native Americans westward, and probably going through Mississippi, I'm sure that they were all there before that. So I think I was assuming that, like, that they come from like a, a war-torn country from that point. It's fascinating to think that, yeah, and you're finding these ones that are a thousand years old or eight hundred years old or whatever. It's crazy. Yeah, dude, there's some that are like eight thousand years old that I have. That's crazy. Yeah, do you have I them mean, on the wall and stuff. Say it again. Do you have them on your wall or do you display them in a certain way? Yeah, yeah. I have them at my house um, in cases and stuff. I have, I mean, I have hundreds of them, man. It's it's a big hobby of mine. I love it. Um, I kind of want to hear more on that, but we'll do that. We'll sidebar. Um, you, the, I just want to give a shout out also to a, a recent song you wrote that I think is pretty brilliant. Um the worst country song of all time. It's like the kind of song that it's very Brad Paisley in that concept, you know, a lot of ways, but in like, it's the fact that that song can be written and then released is just awesome. Well, that's awesome, man. I appreciate it. I love that song, man. It's so um, very clever. Um, thank you, man. So you're on a bus right now. Uh, where are you? We are in Twin Lakes, Wisconsin. Oh, nice. Nice. Uh, yeah. Joe London is from Milwaukee, and I'm from all the way north Illinois, like pretty close to the border. So Right on. Uh, yeah. We know, we know our Wisconsin. Um, go Bucks. All right, so uh, our, our last segment is a five for five. I'm going to list five things, and, and you just tell me what, uh, what comes off the top of your head. Let's start with uh, Madison, your sister. Um, just the first thing that comes off the top of my head. Yeah. Uh, her kids, her niece and nephew, or my niece and nephew, excuse me. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, uh, let's go with, uh, Dennis. Maniac. (laughs) Uh, let's go with Morgan Wallen. (laughs) Partying. (laughs) Uh, Let's go with Joey Moy. Rock and roll. And uh, finally, let's go with Craig Wiseman. Legend. <laughs> I mean, no doubt. That's the first thing that comes to mind. Well, congratulations on everything. Thanks for doing the podcast, man. I, 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 I feel like this is something we should just do annually and catch in because you have so much stuff that gets released so regularly. Um, I would love to, man. Um, but you know, it's like they're 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 just you root for people in the business that your friends are rooting for, and and I feel like there's in the, in an industry where everyone is so envious, it's hard to get people to you know to to almost unilaterally have everyone say like, oh no no no, he's great, he's so nice, or he's so prolific, or he's so. The way you interact with people is so positive that 
you know, behind your back there's a story being written that you'd want to read, you know what I mean? Huh. I, I, I just, you know, no one really talks about that. I definitely have done some interviews. There was one interview that we won't be releasing, <laughs> uh, but where the guy got really kind of offended when he has he had sort of a negative reputation. I was like, well, you know, like you have a neg, you know, people talk behind your back. He's like, ah, oh, people don't, you know, you expect me to know, uh, you expect me to know what people say behind my back. And I was <clears> like, um, no, I'll just, you know. You kind of want to tell people what people say behind their back because that's really like what the legacy that they're leaving. And, yeah, dude. And I mean, that's a good point. You're just leaving like a really good legacy, and you're just starting. Damn, I want to. Is this a country rider? <laughs> no, I'll. I'll. Well, also side. Tell me when we're off the air. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, you're just you're earning it, man. You're just earning it. You're out there hustling and you're writing and you're just you're you're doing it. And uh you should just be proud of yourself and and thanks for doing the podcast, man. Dude, thank you, man. I appreciate it. And I've I've known about this podcast for a long time, dude. So I'm, I was when I got the news that you wanted me to be on it, I was I was pumped, man. Seriously. Sick. There you go. Awesome. This episode is produced by Joe London, Hypnosis, Mega House Management, and myself. Shout out Paige McDonald, Kelly Fox, Casey Robinson, David Silberstein, Tim Kirch, and Zach Weinstein. See you all next week. I'm Ross Golan, signing off. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 